We have completed our seven-week review of Pentecost, and we're going to move this morning into a different direction. And I'm going to entitle the uh, comments for today, We Wrestle. We could also say, We Wrestle Not Against. But the idea is that we are wrestling. And so I would like to uh, mention a couple of things about the principles of wrestling. Successful wrestler is a person who is able to use the opponent's strength and momentum against him. The idea is to keep the opponent off balance. It's to thwart his intentions and to use his strength and momentum against him and in your favor. This is wrestling. With that thought in mind, we uh, are engaged, the Christian church is engaged and has been engaged from the very beginning of the church in wrestling. And the opponents that we wrestle against are not flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against human beings in the first instance. Although we may find ourselves doing it, it's not the human being that is our primary uh, opponent. But we are wrestling. And I'm going to, uh, this morning, I'm going to return to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'm going to refer to a... uh, coverage of that passage of scripture that we did almost five years ago. But to begin, let me just mention a little bit about COVID-19. I just want to mention a few thoughts. I have said nothing or I've said very little about COVID-19 now for several weeks. Let me just add a couple of thoughts with regards to the origin of uh, this uh, virus. And the question is, uh, is it designed or did it evolve? It's really interesting to me that it comes down to those two Is it designed? And if it's designed, is it designed to do what it has done? And does it have the nature 
Um, does it have the ability to infect and to bring about the certain certain results because it has been designed to do that, or has it is it something that is just naturally evolved? The other thing I want to mention about it is that um, we are not in a position to say with certainty whether it's designed or whether it has evolved. But one thing we can say now, after having viewed this for several months, is that the pandemic has been exploited. So the virus, COVID-19, has been and is being exploited. I'll just mention a few things that are obvious to me. There are some conclusions that I may not draw and others uh, observations that I believe can be made. One of the things that has happened as a result of this um, COVID-19 crisis is that the uh, elderly among our society, our population, the elderly and the people suffering with compromised immune system, whether that's a result of some illness, some disease they have, or a function of age, these individuals basically are a hostage to the virus. And because uh, the elderly among us are held, being held hostage. There is a compliance. Everyone else is in a position of compliance because no one wants to put their loved ones in jeopardy. No one wants to do anything that would hurt in any way their loved ones. And so the elderly are basically being held hostage by the nature of this, of this virus, and that's resulting in compliance on the part of everyone else. The other thing that's uh, very clear to observe is that there has been a growing dependence upon professional elites. And the people within our society now who are declaring what's lawful and what is unlawful are not legislators, are not those that normally would legislate on these matters of law. But the ones doing that now are the social medical professionals. And we have uh, given over to the professionals, the elites, social, medical professionals, the right to tell us what is lawful and what is unlawful. In effect, what they are doing is they're the ones who are binding and loosing, if you like. We have consented to this largely because of, and as a consequence of our love that we have for our family members and the love we have for the elderly, our parents and our grandparents and those who may have uh, compromised immune systems. And so the idea basic is a little bit like this. You, you have to function this way, do these things, refrain from doing these other things because you don't want to put the health of your loved ones in jeopardy. Oh no, we don't want to do that. Therefore, we will consent to do these things. I'm not drawing ultimate conclusions by saying these things. I'm saying that these are observable. These are, these are consequences of this virus and the spread of the virus and whether the virus was according to design or whether it is something that is naturally evolved. And that's a question that uh, will, become, will be answered at some point. And uh, you may have strong feelings one way or another on that. I'm not prepared to go beyond that question stage right at this moment in time. But what I can say is that there are a lot of these consequences. And so I'll say this much, that they at the very least 
they have been exploited to bring about these, uh, these results. But now we're seeing something else emerge. And what we're seeing emerge now is we're seeing evidence of the sympathies of the new rulers we have among us, the social medical professionals, and where the sympathies lie with these individuals. And what we're seeing is that what they are opposed to, in other words, what they do not have any sympathy for, would be the traditional assemblies. So traditional assemblies, whether it be for work, whether it be for worship, those individuals are being, well, required to isolate. So isolate yourself. Whatever you do, do not assemble. Don't assemble in a traditional way. That is forbidden. But what these rulers, these new rulers, these unelected rulers are in favor of and are supportive of is uh, what we would call before, just a few short years ago, we would call unlawful assemblies. Those who assemble and they have no right to exercise use of force, but they use it anyway to impose their will upon everyone else. People that would have been dispersed as rioters and assemblies declared unlawful are now permitted by the our new ruling class to, to assemble. And for some reason, there is a greater good in their assembling, even though it's a very hostile, violent assembly dedicated to mayhem. Somehow, this is, uh, this, is, uh, this is permitted. So we see the sympathies now, which is opposed to the traditional assembly, but in favor of an unlawful assembly or an assembly on the basis of the purpose of Black Lives Matter. And the part that is uh, astonishing, really, is the numbers of people within our society who are in favor of this agenda and who are supportive of this. And we have very influential people from the political realm. We have presidents, prime ministers, all parts of the Western world bowing the the knee to this uh, agenda. So we have political leaders, we have educators, sports leaders, very famous sporting leaders. If they say anything untoward or if they say anything in favor of traditional way of thinking, then they are soon brought into line and the apology tour begins. And so it's political leaders, educators, sports, entertainment, legal community, and large sections of these of these groups are voicing their favor for the aims and the objectives of groups who are would have been deemed a short time ago as unlawful assemblies. And what I find very revealing is that the way in which they are voicing or ma- or manifesting their support for this uh, new revolution that is occurring within our society is that they're bowing their knee. They're bowing their knee. Now that should speak volumes to us. And that's as far as I'm going to go this morning with that. I just mentioned some of those points as these are observable. These are some things that we can see 
and we'll need to uh, better understand them as we move forward. But what I want to present this morning, I will return to the November the 1st, 2015. In the weeks preceding that date, I had the Second, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 was presented to me in a way it had not been previously. And I found myself um, walking through these pages of Scripture and considering what was being said and what was intended by what was being said. And I began to write. I presented what I'm going to present this morning. I presented large par- portions of this again on the Sunday morning of November 1, 2015. It's almost five years ago now. But in light of our series on Pentecost and in light of all the events that are happening around us, it seems very clear to me that we need to return to this scripture and I will present it the same way as I presented it almost five years ago. And largely since I wrote this at that time, I will read this to you this morning, again, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a message, or by a letter as if from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. And so the apostle is writing to correct misunderstanding and confusion concerning the second coming of Jesus. Now, the period under consideration is from the time of this writing by the apostle to the end of the age and to the return of the Messiah. And so all of that period of time is being considered by the apostle. Verse 3, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. And people are often deceived because they allow themselves to be. The special messenger commands believers not to permit deception. And this should be emphasized today. We should allow ourselves to be impressed deeply by this. Paul tells the believers at Thessalonica that the return of Messiah will not occur until after two significant things have happened. What are those things? And how are we to understand them? First, the apostasy will come. And this will be a falling away from. It will be a forsaking. It will be a defection from the truth. This will take place among Christian assemblies in a widespread fashion. He is writing about the churches, not unbelievers, but those who profess to be followers of Jesus. Paul uses similar words in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 4. And this is what he says. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now this is a departure or falling away from a former condition. And the cause of the apostasy is openness to deception. It couldn't happen unless the apostasy could not occur unless there was an openness to deception. Many who refuse to accept that a believer can fall away from the faith insist 
that the apostle is describing those who were Christians in name only. They never were genuine believers, they say. Their logic is that since it is impossible for a true believer to fall away, those who do must not be true in the first place. Now, this is an example of theological belief forcing the interpretation of Scripture. We are called to conform to the spirit and letter of inspired Scripture and never to require the text to conform to our personal beliefs. Failure to accept that this coming apostasy involves believers departing from the faith due to acceptance of error and demonic teaching is to misunderstand the special message Paul is delivering. If people who have never genuinely believed abandon their profession, that does not cause seismic waves in the spiritual realm. They were in the domain of darkness before as they are after. Nothing significant has changed. However, when true believers in large numbers embrace deceiving spirits and depart from the true faith because of that error, this means a spiritual earthquake that changes the face of the planet. This is what the Apostle Paul is stating will come. This means that the spirits of those former believers in exceptionally large numbers will experience a profound change. They will continue to possess the spiritual faculties of intuition, conscience, and communion. But the place of fellowship will have shifted to the domain of darkness. The place within them intended as a temple for God's presence, purchased by Jesus for that purpose alone. The place that no longer is the exclusive property of the individual is now made available to the adversary. Can we understand this? That's the question. Can we understand this? Because this is the apostasy. The second thing is that the man of lawlessness is revealed. This man of lawlessness has always existed as a mystery, a concealed spiritual reality that opposes God and Christ. This is the Antichrist spirit that has always been in the world. But now, because of this unprecedented apostasy, the formerly hidden is revealed into the earth. Verse 4 says, He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he himself is God. There is considerable debate among scholars concerning the Greek text in this place. Is this an individual man, a kind of humanity, or a series of individual men? This is a place where we should be cautious and prayerful before drawing conclusions that will determine how the rest of the passage is understood. This is a good place to raise our eyes to heaven and say, Lord, I do not know how to understand this. Unless the Holy Spirit opens this and leads the study, I cannot know and I will not guess or be fully persuaded by the voice of one among many scholars. I know your written word is like a symphony. Tune my spiritual ear to the notes of harmony and permit me to know the discordant note as well. I will wait, Lord, upon you. And we could say amen because that is a prayer. 
The nature and character of this man of lawlessness is to exalt himself to the position of supreme authority. He recognizes no superior. He worships no one. His opinions and judgments are the final word in all things. His self-exaltation is to the degree that he will occupy God's temple as if he himself is God. How we understand this is influenced by what we think Paul is referring to in his reference to temple. The question is, what sanctuary is this? Is it God's sanctuary? But where is it? Is it the temple in Jerusalem? If so, obviously the temple must be rebuilt there and a sacrificial system of worship reinstituted. Those who interpret Paul in this way use this passage to support an end-time scenario. It presumes that the man of lawlessness is an end-time individual who will enter the sanctuary of a restored temple in Jerusalem and be dislodged and destroyed by Jesus at his return. But what sanctuary of God is the apostle considering as he writes this letter? The context and the entire special revelation given to Paul by our Lord himself strongly suggests that Paul is writing about the temple of God in the spirit of believers both individually and collectively. This is new covenant worship as he prophesied in the Old Testament and instituted on the day of Pentecost. This is the true church in the world comprised of both Jew and Gentile, in whom God's presence is pleased to dwell in baptismal measure. Jesus had prophesied the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and all the apostles knew that was about to take place. How would the Apostle Paul view a rebuilt Jewish temple complete with all the Old Testament sacrificial system when he knew by special revelation that all the old types and shadows had been fulfilled in Messiah. He would certainly not refer to any such structure as being a sanctuary of God. Failure to see this indicates a serious flaw in our understanding of the new covenant and what it is. Paul is writing about a profound apostasy that will come in the end days. Believers will progressively permit themselves to be deceived by false spirits and demonic instruction. And this will result over time in a departure from the true faith by much of the visible church in the world. This will obviously degrade the spiritual life of many until the faculties of the human spirit, which are intuition, conscience, and communion, which have been reserved as a sanctuary for God, will be occupied by a satanic influence. This will permit the manifestation of the man of lawlessness. The apostasy will permit that which was concealed to be revealed in the earth. The spirit-filled and spirit-led church in the world has always restrained the manifestation of evil. Darkness always yields to light and cannot manifest when light is present. And this is true in both the natural and spiritual realms. The degree of darkness is determined by the degree of light. When the man of lawlessness occupies the sanctuary of professing Christians, and when the spirit faculties are corrupted, 
The result is what we are beginning to increasingly see around us today. Intuition becomes increasingly man-centered and reason is captivated by worldly ideology. Conscience is not responsive to God's moral law. Conviction of sin becomes increasingly difficult as the sense of right and wrong is altered by the unholy fellowship in the spirit. And communion is with the God of this world and all the ideas and values of a fallen world order. The values and worldview will become increasingly humanistic and rebellious. The character of the man of lawlessness will become more evident in those who commune with him. They will wax arrogant, authoritative, and less tolerant with any who may oppose them. They will yearn for power and influence over all the institutions of society with a zeal that is fueled from within themselves. Let me just add, coming back to this present moment before I continue with that which I wrote almost five years ago. Does this look familiar to you? What does this look like now? Right today, what does it look like in the light of what is happening right now? As the end of days nears, this manifestation will increase until it will be difficult. It will be difficult to find any institution, governmental, courts, lawmaking, and enforcement, education, church government, public policy, legal counsel, that will not be dominated by this Antichrist spirit. The man of lawlessness will have many laws, but these laws will originate with himself as the ultimate authority. God will be denied. Human beings will be intoxicated with a man-centered authority and will not realize that they are but pawns moved by a spirit of deception. The apostasy does not touch every believer. There will be a great number who will not be deceived. This simply means that the apostasy will be widespread and will influence much of the visible church in the world in the ways already described. There will always be a genuine church comprised of all nations and languages that will worship God in spirit and in truth until the very end. Verse 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you about this? And you know what currently restrains him, so that he will be revealed in his time. The man of lawlessness can only be revealed because of this falling away, this departing from the true faith. The restrainer, then, must be the spirit-filled church, collective and individual walking in genuine fellowship with the Father and the Son, this is true. The one who, rest, who restrains is a state or spiritual condition of the church manifest in the world, not just an individual. One could say the Holy Spirit is the restrainer, but it is more accurate to say that the restrainer is the Spirit-led and Spirit-filled church manifesting in the world. When the spiritual condition of the visible church in the world suffers apostasy, restraint is removed, and the man of sin or the man of lawlessness is made manifest. 
It moves from the mystery of lawlessness to the man of lawlessness revealed. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. Mystery of lawlessness is the hidden principle of rebellion, the spirit that influences to lawlessness. An example is, has God really said? This spirit questions God's words and rules and offers another view of interpretation or interpretation. It appeals to unbelief and disobedience. But there has always been one who restrains him. The restrainer is referred to as he. Does that mean the restrainer is an individual? Ultimately, yes. Ultimately, the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. But in context, it is the influence of the Holy Spirit within the sanctuary of the believers manifesting through this body of believers in the world that accomplishes the restraint. Therefore, the prophesied apostasy is the falling away from the new covenant model until the life of God is no longer being manifested into the world through the body of believers. Judges chapter 16 and verse 15. I'll read uh, from verses 15 through 20 from the book of Judges. How can you say I love you, she told him, when your heart is not with me. This is the third time you have mocked me and not told me what makes your strength so great. Because she nagged him day after day and pleaded with him until she wore him out. He told her the whole truth and said to her, My hair has never been cut because I am a Nazarite to God from birth. If I am shaved, my strength will leave me and I will become weak and be like other men. And when Delilah realized that he had told her the whole truth, she sent this message to the Philistine leaders, Come one more time, for he has told me the whole truth. The Philistine leaders came to her and brought the money with them. Then she let him fall asleep on her lap and called a man to shave off the seven braids on his head. In this way she made him helpless and his strength left him. And then she cried, Samson, The Philistines are here. When he awoke from his sleep, he said, I will escape as I did before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. To the end of verse 20. Philistine power over Samson and Israel is restrained until he is taken out of the way. The restrainer is the anointing based on covenant with God, manifesting into the earth through Samson. Samson did not know that the Lord had left him, that is, had left him to his own resources that were inadequate. The restrainer, ultimately, is the Spirit, manifesting into the world through Samson. The one being restrained, ultimately, is the adversary or Satan, who is manifesting into the world through the Philistines. It is noteworthy that in the end, the conditions for the anointing were restored, and the anointed Samson is responsible for the destruction of the Philistines in a decisive victory. And the question is, will it be this way at the end of this age? Back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed 
the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. Then the lawless one is made manifest in the world. The lawless one is always ultimately Satan, but manifests through individuals once the restraining influence is removed. How will this manifest into the earth? Again, the biblical precedent, you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. That's from Genesis 3 and 5. Mankind will become arrogant and devoted to self-rule. Humanism, both religious and secular, will dominate. Humanist manifestos will be written, signed, and promoted. All public institutions will zealously promote the individual as the supreme authority on all things. Man will decide on all matters previously considered reserved for God. In other words, the place within man, his spirit, designed for the throne of God alone, will be occupied by a militant self. But behind that arrogant self is the adversary who has designed and influenced it all. Man will decide for himself on matters of abortion, sexual identity and practice, gender identity and change. Everything that God has declared to be subject to his moral law will be usurped and violated. This is ultimate rebellion and lawlessness. Man will think he has evolved naturally to his destined privilege, but he is mistaken. He has welcomed the lawless one into the sanctuary of his life. What will result in those who welcome this deception? Man's spirit will be corrupted irreversibly. God has designed our spirit with features of intuition, conscience, and communion. These are intended for fellowship with God and are properly employed and developed to enable worship of God and care for our fellow man. The human spirit is not primarily material or physical. Our spirit is a portal. It is located now within our body and soul, but is also capable of entering into God's presence, and his presence can dwell in our spirit simultaneously. Our minds also have features that occupy the physical and spiritual realms. We can think our own thoughts and God's thoughts in the same moment and distinguish between the two. Do you not know that you are a temple? When the man of lawlessness assumes the highest seat in the human spirit, that is, the area of conscience, communion, and and intuition, all these are corrupted and held hostage by the evil one. The conscience will not be grieved by sin against God. Communion in the spirit will consort with demons and other fallen beings masquerading as truth-bearers. And intuition will affirm and testify to the error being consumed. And there will be a satanic witness of the spirit that the individual is in a healthy place. I want to say, read that again because that's just... Intuition will affirm and testify to the error being consumed. And there will be a satanic witness of the spirit that the individual is in a healthy place. This is the condition described as receiving the mark of the beast or the number of his name. 
the oldest Greek text of portions of the book of Revelations on papyrus is the Chester Beatty papyrus. This this text dates to the 3rd century, about 200 years after the original was written by the Apostle John. This is the English translation of Revelations chapter 13 and verse 18. Here is wisdom. The one therefore having wisdom, let him calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of man, and it is 666. This very ancient document states the number is the number of man, not a man, but man. Does this passage refer to an individual man, or does it describe a condition of humanity? The number 666 has been applied to numerous individuals throughout history by using the number value of the Greek alphabet. The Church of the Reformation presented compelling arguments for 666 pointing to the Latin kingdom and to the papal system. More recently, an interesting view has been advanced that the passage points to the end-time humanism, both religious and secular. There is, however, a common theme that is found in both approaches to the above passage. Whether one considers the papal system or branches of humanism, they all result in a man-centered corruption of the human spirit the place designed for God's spirit. We are beginning to see the paths of the papal system and humanism, both secular and religious, converge. And this is happening now. This verse also describes the destruction of the man of lawlessness. He will be destroyed and brought to nothing. How do we understand this great and wonderful deliverance that is coming upon the earth? Our views will again be governed by our understanding of Paul's use of the word temple. Is this Messiah's bodily return to evict and destroy the Antichrist from a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem? Or does this envision a powerful manifestation again in the earth of the authority of Jesus? The spirit of his mouth is the mighty wind of his authoritative word that changes the face of the earth. He replaces darkness with light, opens prison doors and releases captives. This mighty wind destroys the man of sin and reclaims the rightful place and use of the temple that is in man. What? Do you not know that you are the temple? The revelation of Messiah is a brightness that permits no work of darkness to remain. The apostasy has already begun and will increase. But this great victory over apostasy and the man of lawlessness is certain to follow. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's workings with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders. Satan has, from the beginning, sought to convince mankind that God's rules are too restrictive and limiting. In the original garden, he suggested that there was knowledge, experience, and an elevated position that God's rules were holding them back from enjoying. The satanic suggestion was, you shall be as gods, and God is keeping you from your full potential. The man of lawlessness will, and is, using the enticement of advanced education to convince mankind 
that he is evolving towards a higher plane. This false angel of light will teach that traditional Christian views are outdated and harmful to the advancement of mankind. Concepts of love, compassion, and acceptance will focus on promoting the things in fallen man that Jesus came to deliver us from. As the revelation of the man of lawlessness increases in the earth, satanic deception and lying wonders will increase exponentially. The persecution of those who practice genuine Christian beliefs will increase with nearly unanimous public approval. The text of scripture and other monotheistic religions will be reinterpreted with cunning genius to gain near universal support for the concept of elevated mankind. You will be as gods. Will the men of lawlessness ultimately be revealed as a unique individual in the earth? This may come to pass, but it is likely that the manner is yet to be fully understood. It is clear, however, that the individuals who will rise to leadership positions in the earth will be possessed of this spirit of lawlessness. It does not mean that they will not employ laws. It means that they will be lawless in terms of God's law and will employ laws that advance their personal goals. Arrogance and superiority will characterize them. They will not respect the limitations on power imposed by their fathers and will radically alter governmental and social structures. Now again, let me, let me just remind, I wrote this almost five years ago and it was very strongly impressed on me at the time. And I'm asking everyone to look at it now in the light of what's occurring uh, today. Second Thessalonians, again, chapter 2 and verse 10. And with every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing, and they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. The deception will have complete power over all those who do not possess a genuine love of the truth. I'm just going to add something here that is uh, also true. You will find individuals within society who do have a love for truth and will not be subject to this deception. And you may have difficulty identifying them as a Christian because they may not be... um, they, they may not be Christians. They may be individuals who, even in some cases, are somewhat agnostic. But there are individuals who have a respect for the truth, a desire for truth. And even though they have not yet attained the kind of truth that is necessary for salvation, because they have not been the recipients or the beneficiary of biblical truth, they still deep down within themselves love the truth and desire the truth. And if they were to hear the gospel being presented in power, they would readily embrace it. And you'll find that many of these people will not be deceived. Verse 11, For this reason God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false. The strong delusion that God sends is like God hardening Pharaoh's heart 
When Pharaoh rejected the manifest power of God and the anointed leaders sent to him, his heart was hardened consequently. It is true to say, therefore, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it is also true that Pharaoh hardened his own heart by the choices he made. The law of gravity causes the fall. And the man causes his own fall by stepping off the cliff. Both are true. A strong delusion at the ending of the age operates in the same way. And then finally, verse 12. So that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth, but enjoyed unrighteousness. And that brings me to a place of, not a conclusion of what was written nearly five years ago, but I'll bring it to a pause at this point. Now this brings us to drawing several conclusions based on the podcast for this morning. I believe there are several uh, conclusions that can be reasonably drawn. And I'll just uh, give them in point form. COVID-19 continues to be a dangerous and yet not fully understood virus. Among the higher at risk are the seniors and those with compromised immunity. Many in our governing bodies and healthcare system are true public servants. But many are eager to use this crisis to further an agenda of societal change. True Christian influence has rapidly declined in public institutions such as education, legislation, mainstream media, public policy, and most places of societal influence, including churches. This decline results in the rapidly growing Antichrist spirit that is explained in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This Antichrist influence is coming in like a tsunami and many people are caught and are being swept up by it. Many of these people would be people you would never have expected that they would be enveloped by it. This explanation that we have provided this morning, this explanation of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, is solid scriptural exposition. And it is being fulfilled before our eyes right now. Those waiting for another interpretation are missing it while they wait. This means we are close to the end of this age. A restoration of Pentecost and the return of Jesus are near. And with these thoughts in mind, our eyes turn south to the United States of America due to its place of global influence. What will happen there in November? Is President Trump a barrier to this rising tide? Or is his influence an accelerant for it? It's too soon to tell, but soon we'll know the answer. As always, the answer to all of this is the gospel proclaimed in the power of of the Spirit of the Lord. That's what Pentecost is all about. That's the purpose of Pentecost. And when the harvest is completed, it will be time to hear the midnight cry. Go ye out to meet him. Be certain that your lamp is filled with oil and ready to be trimmed.